We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Kind of the, the sense we're, I'm getting is the same that my family had. It was like just different. It was for my family, it was the first year we've ever been, or in my lifetime, ever been at home on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Um, and I hope it was sweet for you. I hope that there were new memories and new traditions um, and, and sweet times with your family that were made in the midst of it. It's good to see you all here today and, uh, and to be able to worship with you. Thanks for joining uh, with us. If you're a guest, my name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. And on behalf of our pastors in our church, welcome to Emmaus. We're, we're delighted that you're here. We pray that when you leave, you leave here loving Jesus more than you did when you came in here. We pray that you would leave knowing his love for um, those whom he has saved as well and that you would be drawn to, um, to, to love of him and, and faith in him. Hey, I want to give you a couple updates before we jump into this beautifully rich text that we have here for us today. A couple, couple announcements. First of all, um, we announced back on November 1 uh, at our members meeting that we are doing a first ever global offering as a church, uh, meaning that we are asking our covenant members to give um, above and beyond their normal giving to Emmaus, uh, and we set a goal of $50,000. So we set that goal on November 1st. We wanted to reach 50,000 by January 31st. 100% of that would be used for the sake of, of missions. Here at Emmaus, we have a, a kind of a new branch of ministry of our church that we call Global Outreach, which is um, calling out, training, sending, and supporting missionaries uh, and, and pastors around the globe. And so 100% of those dollars go to that. Um, to this date, as of, as of yesterday at least, maybe some of you gave this morning to that, but as of yesterday, uh, you had given 34500 $550 to the um, global fund since November 1st, above and beyond your normal giving, which I might add is uh, this is the largest month of giving Emmaus has ever seen, um, above and beyond even the global offering. Uh, and so you have been incredibly faithful to continue giving to that. If you've not yet given to that and the Lord is prompting on your heart, um, we'd encourage you to do that before January 31st so that we can continue supporting uh, missionaries. Uh, it's been neat. We already had a need in one family that we have sent out. Uh, that arise, arose this month, and we were able to go ahead and send them support that we were going to give them next year to help them through a really difficult season and time um, right now as the Lord continued to provide, which greatly encourages them. So thank you for your giving that way. And then also, just so you know, as we move towards the end of the year, those of you who um, sometimes give end of the year gifts, remember uh, we need those in or, or marked by, if you're sending a check, marked before the 31st. And if you're doing online, given before the 31st if you want tax credit for 2020. So make sure that you get those in. Hey, uh, also, as part of our leaders, uh, a leadership initiative in holistic health for the leaders of Emmaus, meaning our, our directors, our staff, our, our team, uh, and starting in January, uh, I've given them a, a list of things that I want us to kind of walk through to, to be healthy and to kind of um, be whole coming out of a really tough year and season. Uh, I want our leaders to be spiritually healthy, physically healthy, emotionally healthy as we're moving forward. And one of those pieces that I've asked our leaders to do with me is to read a psalm of the day from January 1st until May 31st, right? That's 150 days, which is beautiful because there's 150 psalms. So January 1st through May 31st, I've asked our leaders to read a psalm a day, the psalm of, um, just start on the, with the first, uh, start with Psalm 1 on January 1st and just 
Go through Psalm 150 on May 31st. I just tell you that not because you're required to do that as members, but just to invite you into it if you want to do it along with us, to know, hey, there's others in our church who are reading through this as well. Today, as I read this scripture, there are um, dozens of others who are reading this scripture and perhaps have conversations about that. So I wanted to invite you to do that with me. Also just thought I would show this. I'm going to be reading it through this uh, book, which is simply, it's a book, but it's simply the Psalms. There's no commentary. There's no added anything except just um, beautiful pictures that go along with the Psalms. And so it's just kind of a different visual, kind of a a heart calming visual as I read along in the Psalms. And so I'll leave that here after the service. If you want to swing by, just snap a photo of that with your phone, feel free to. Don't pick it up and handle it. I don't know where you've been this week with COVID, but feel free to snap a photo of my book and, uh, and walk on out the door then, and feel free to order that on Amazon. Last thing before we jump into um, prayer and then this text. Um, as I mentioned a moment ago, our global outreach um, that we are doing here at Emmaus, the global outreach ministry, each week in your um, emails that you should receive on Monday, those of you who are signed up to receive weekly emails from Emmaus, on Monday there's going to be a global outreach spotlight every week. The, the information about that will kind of help remind you, here's who we are and what we're doing in the area of, of calling, training, sending, supporting Um, There's terminology in there that you're going to be hearing throughout the year, but there's also a video link, a different link every week to a story about what God is doing around the the globe for the sake of the gospel being spread. So stories from the International Mission Board, um, which is through the Southern Baptist Convention that we affiliate with, and stories through Acts 29, which is a church planning network that we're a part of. So every week there's a different link you can link, and and the desire of that is that you would simply watch that uh, three to four minute video and that your heart would be stirred to be a part of what God is doing doing around the globe for the sake of the gospel and calling people into salvation. We want to continue to foster that um, desire within you uh, to to pray, to send, and and even to go for the sake of the gospel. So just make sure you're looking for those in those emails. Click that link. I believe that they will encourage you and uh, and utilize that, that resource. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into this text. Jesus, I thank you that you have brought us here today on this last Sunday of a very strange and difficult year. Father, we have gathered in this room far less than we wanted to this year. We were kept from gathering for an extended period of time. Some of us have been sick and unable to gather. Some of us have been exposed and unable to gather. Some of us are highly, um, uh, highly susceptible to sickness and unable to gather. Father, still to this day, there are um, members of our church who have not yet been able to gather back with us because of their own health. Father, we long to be in the room together. We long to all join together and to sing together and to worship together again as we move towards the end of this year. As we look at the last few days of 2020, Father, what we realize is that as we move into a new calendar year, there's not much that will actually change because of one day rolling over. And yet at the same time, there's a new day and a new year and a new promise of hope, a new reality that you have not forgotten us, that you're still on your throne as the sun comes up on another year. And Father, that 2020 did not catch you by surprise. So Father, would you encourage our hearts as we move into a new year, that you were the king in 2019 and you were the king in 2020 and you will be in 2021. May our hearts be renewed with hope and with faithfulness. Father, be with our 
uh, Sister Mariella, she is um, in South Asia, is a um, missionary there. Father, she has spent 2020 alone. She has spent 2020 in a culture um, where she doesn't know the language um, fluently, where she has been um, with a roommate locked in an apartment for many days and weeks um, without much contact outside. No family, no friends, nothing of normalcy. Father, it's been a hard year, and I pray that you would encourage her heart as she moves into another year and her last year there on the field. And Father, we pray for our members that are in this room and those who are watching via live stream today, that you would stir our hearts with conviction of our sin, and that you would stir our hearts with hopefulness of our freedom from sin. God, would you stir within us a remembrance of who we are, that we may live as those who we truly are. We pray these things from this text in your name. Amen. I know that you have been probably inundated over the last few weeks with Hallmark Christmas movies. You're probably drowning in romance and beautiful beginnings and life change on the silver screen. Um, but, but I want to bring your attention briefly back to one of the greatest cinematic um, films of, of history. It's, time, it's fitting that we're in a theater and we'll talk about a, a film here to begin this sermon. But I want to bring you back to The Lion King, one of the greatest films of all time. There's a scene in The Lion King. If you remember, Simba has run away. Simba, the, the baby lion, he has, he has run away and he is hiding. He is shame-ridden and he is grief-stricken over the loss of his father, which he believes he caused. The evil praying lion, Scar, has convinced Simba that he must live in shame and guilt and that he must isolate himself from the community. That he's not worthy of his father's house or of his father's people that he must live in this isolation and fear. While Simba's away, he meets Timon and Pumbaa, two who become deep friends of his, but not necessarily the most uh, um, rightly encouraging types of guys. They're more just kind of like, ah, just let, let it roll as it rolls. And as he's growing up, there's this scene where Nala, his childhood friend, who has also grown up, has come to look for him. You see, Scar has, has taken over the Pride Lands, he has let in the evil hyenas. He has stripped the, the lions of their food and of their hopefulness, and, and things are dismal and dark and, and hopeless. And Nala comes to find Simba, the son of the king. And she finds him, and she explains to him all that is going on, and he simply doesn't think that he can go back. He's not the same person that he used to be. And there's this, this, this movie-changing scene that takes place when Rafiki, the the monkey, calls Simba to the water to see the king. He says, come, come see your father, come see the king. And he brings him to the cliff and he points him over into this pool of water and he says, look down there. And Simba looks down and the conversation goes this way. That's, that's not my father, it's just my reflection. And Rafiki says, look harder. The water stirs. And Rafiki says, see, he lives in you. And the voice of Mufasa, Simba's father, the king, speaks from the heavens and says, you have forgotten me. You have forgotten who you are, and therefore you have forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you've become. Remember who you are. You are my son. Remember who you are. You are my son. 
And Simba looks up, and with great zeal and newness of life, he starts running back to the Pride Lands. Rafiki begins dancing and celebrating and cackling. The son of the king remembered who he was, and he was going back to go make war on the evil that had taken over the Pride Lands. Evil had taken up his residence in this land, and it did not belong there. Scar had no true authority at Pride Rock. The Pride Lands belonged to the king, and this evil must be driven out. And the son, who remembered who he was, went to war to drive out the evil from the land. This is very similar to the scene we see in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, Paul is pointing, Romans 6 brings us to a turning point in this book. Paul has been talking to this moment from chapters 1 through 5 about our justification. Right? The, the way that we, are, um, that we have pardon from the penalty of sin in our lives. The way that we are saved from our sin. And in this moment, he turns the conversation to our sanctification. The way that we are freed from the power of sin in our lives. In chapter 1, Paul talks about God's wrath towards the unrighteous. And that the righteous will live by faith. In chapters 2 and 3, Paul says no one is exempt from this judgment because no one is righteous. We are all deserving of God's wrath. In chapters 4 and 5, he says we are made righteous only through faith in Jesus, the righteous Son of God. In chapter 5, it was through one man's sin that sin entered the world, Adam, and it was through one man's obedience, Christ, that life was given to all who would believe in him through faith. And as Paul is concluding chapter 5, if you've forgotten Sam's sermon on chapter 5 before we start our Advent series, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. As Paul is is, um, concluding chapter 5, this gauntlet of guilty pardoned, the dead made alive, the righteous made righteous, the slave set free, he says this, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In all of Paul's letters, and specifically here in Romans, Paul has thrown all of his chips in on grace. He is betting the house on grace. He is absolutely confident that the more he sins, the more God's grace is abounding in his life. He is absolutely assured, Christian, that if you have placed your faith in Jesus, the more you sin, the more of God's grace through Jesus you will realize that you have received. It will abound all the more within your heart. God's grace, in other words, doesn't run out if you sin too much. It just keeps being applied to your debt again and again and again. I would argue that if you preach this grace-filled gospel of Jesus, this grace-filled gospel of Jesus, you should have to answer questions like Paul is about to answer. Paul has preached such a grace-filled gospel that he is now about to have, he is now um, having to answer this question that he assumes they're asking of, so what then? Should we just keep on sinning? If, if grace never runs out, I should just keep on sinning. If the gospel you preach isn't met with that type of opposition, that type of questioning, the gospel you preach might not have enough grace in it. This is not a tension that Paul's afraid of. He simply preaches grace-filled gospel, and then he preaches and stops sinning. The two are not exclusive. 
It doesn't take much imagination to see where this could cause some to run to. Perhaps the very thought that Paul is about to to address popped into your head, even if ever so briefly. If God does not run out of grace for me, and if the more I sin, the more his grace abounds within me, the more I get to realize his grace, then why stop sinning? As one pastor said, I like sinning. God likes forgiving. This is a great deal. I like sinning. God likes forgiving. This is a really good deal. Of course I want that. I keep sinning. He keeps forgiving. We both get what we really want. This is the mindset, the heart that Paul is addressing, the questions that he is addressing. Why give up my porn if God is full of grace? Why give up my substance abuse if God's grace doesn't end? Why stop gossiping? Why go through the trouble of dealing with my bitterness, my temper, my lust, and my pride? Why worry about these things? I can enjoy the benefits of my sin. I don't have to go through the humility of confession and I still get to relish in God's bottomless grace. Why would I ever take myself through the painful journey of confession and repentance and and killing my sin? Sign me up for that deal. Perhaps some of us wouldn't dare to think that way. So let me ask the question this way. Do you live that way? Cognitively, you're ahead of the game enough to tell yourself not to think that way. That's the wrong way to think. But do you live this way? Do you have a sin in your life that you won't deal with? You can't stop looking at pornography. You're often angry with your spouse. You're easily short-tempered or impatient with your kids. You're fudging on your hours at work. You're ignoring the bitterness that grows in you. You're embracing the doubt that is taking root in you. You're divisive in the body of Christ, the church. There are thoughts and actions and feelings of hatred and oppression and racism within you that you won't admit and confess. There's idolatry of nationalism, which is going unaddressed. Do you live as if sin doesn't matter? Do you live as if your sin isn't that big of a deal? Do you live as if, huh, God's grace is endless. I'll just confess this later. Why fight it now? Just sin, give in, look at that, say that, do that. Afterwards, I'll just say I'm sorry and he'll forgive me. Maybe you don't think that way, but do you live that way? Chapter 6 is this turning point. He's been talking about justification, and now he's going to talk about sanctification. He has told us how to be free from the penalty of sin. Now he's going to tell us how to be freed from the power of sin in our daily lives. Let's look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What can we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Not a chance. Never. No. May it never be. Ten times in the book of Romans, Paul uses this phrase or a phrase like this. 
where he asks a rhetorical question and then he responds with, no, absolutely not. It is inconceivable for Paul that a follower of Jesus, one who has stepped out of death and into life, would actually choose to continue walking in sin and use grace as their excuse. It is unthinkable for him that we would do this. He says in verse 2, By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Right? He says in verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's not asking a question based on a question about our ability to sin, right? He's not saying, because you died to sin, how could you still sin? I don't think you could still do that. Like, it's impossible to sin. It's not an issue of ability. He knows we're able to keep sinning, though we have died. Paul's question is not a question of our ability, but a question of, of are we still, um, uh, or why do we keep feeling the need to obey our sin? to give ourselves to our sin, like we're out of control because of our sin. How could that be, Paul says? How could it be that you constantly keep going back to your sin as if you have no power over it? We got our son a Nintendo Switch for Christmas, which has revolutionized the last two days of our life. Yesterday, he looked at me at in the car, and he said, Dad, I wish you wouldn't have got this for me. Well, that was a flop, I guess. He said, why? He said, because now I have to choose. Do I want to play this or do I want to watch a video and I can't choose? And I said, Asa, I said, oh, man, that's a tough choice. Life is full of really hard choices. It's a hard one. And he said, know this, though. Like, this is yours. Like, you don't have to, like, Never play this again if you want to watch a video right now. It's not if you play this right now, or if you don't play this right now, you never get to touch it again. You lose it. You're, you're like the boss of your game. You get to put it down when you want to put it down, and you pick it up when you want to pick it up. You can play it. So today he wakes up, and he looks at me. We're still laying in bed, and he goes, Daddy, first words out of his mouth, Daddy, yeah, yeah bud, I'm the boss of my video game. Yes, you are, son. Yes, you are. Daddy, I can play it when I want to play it, but I don't have to play it. It doesn't make me play it. And this sermon was ringing through my head. I wish that I would wake up in the mornings. And before I even crawled out of the bed, my first words would be, my sin is not my boss today. I don't have to play with it just because it tells me to play with it. I am its boss. It is not my master. It has been defeated. Right? Paul is addressing this issue. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Why do you feel the need to continue obeying it? He says in verse 3 and 5, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ, into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? As we hear the word baptism here, church, I'm sure that those of us who have been in church a while, especially those of us who have been baptized, probably have the image of our physical water baptism coming to mind. And, and that's good. Right? It's good that this is coming to our mind. It's good that we have that image because that's exactly what baptism is. right? It's, it's a physical image of a spiritual reality. 
right? When you get dunked into the water, the water itself is not what cleanses you from your sin. The actual dunking under the water doesn't save you from your sins. That's not the moment of your justification and your freedom over your sin. Your physical baptism is an act of obedience which publicly professes through a symbol what has already happened within you. Your physical baptism should have been preceded by a spiritual baptism. When the Spirit of God regenerated your heart and gave you faith in the Son of God, and when this happened, when you were given this faith in Jesus, you became united to Jesus. The theological term here in this passage is united with Christ or union with Christ. This beautiful reality that through faith, what is Christ is yours. Through faith, what is Christ is yours. Ephesians 1 addresses this idea. In Ephesians 1, it tells us that through union with Christ, we have received election. Right? You were chosen before the foundation of the world. You have received holiness. You have received pardon to be blameless. You have received adoption. He has made you his sons and his daughters. You have received redemption through his blood. Right? Your debt is paid. You have received forgiveness of your trespasses. Right? He's not bitterly paid your debt only to hold your offenses over your head for all of eternity, but he's redeemed us and forgiven us of them. You've been given rich grace lavished upon you. Right? He's not stingy with his grace. You've been given knowledge of his plan that has been in place before the foundation of the world to redeem those through Christ who have faith. You've been given an inheritance. What, the, what is promised to Jesus is now promised to you. And if these are not enough, Paul sums up Ephesians 1, um, rounds it up by saying this, and he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Right? So in other words, if these aren't enough blessings for your mouth to water, he's given you every spiritual blessing. And here in Romans, Paul unpacks more of these spiritual blessings of this union with Christ. Because of this union with Christ, we, are, we find realities like this in Romans 6. His death is your death. Jesus' death is your death. When Jesus died on the cross, paying the penalty for your sins, you, your, his death was credited to you. When he received God's wrath on the cross, you received God's wrath because you are in Christ. His burial is your burial. When Jesus was laid in the ground, so were you, dead, lifeless. And his resurrection is your resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead to new life, defeating sin and death, so were you. His resurrection is your resurrection. In Christ, you have been raised to life, leaving the old sin-filled faith void, you in the grave. And a new man, a new woman has risen to new life. You were one person, but through faith in Jesus, that person died with Jesus, and today a new person lives through faith. You're not the same person you were before Jesus. Paul, for five chapters, has unpacked who you were before Christ. A slave to sin, can't overcome it, helpless to defeat sin on your own, guilty underneath the wrath of God but you died with Christ through faith and you are no longer that person, but a new person. You're not simply a better version of yourself. You're not simply a more moral copy of yourself. You're not simply the same person, but with faith, you died and a new person lives. 
You died and a new person lives. Paul goes on to explain why this matters. Look at verse 6. We'll read verse 5, start in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So the beauty that Paul draws out in this union with Christ is that when Christ died, those who have faith in him died as well. And when you died, you died to your sin and the evil, wicked master that this sin was. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains it this way. I'll elaborate. He says it's like a sheep who is in a field, the field of Adam, the field of sin. Their master is sin and they obey their master's voice. They come when their master calls. They go where their master says to go. They're led by the master of sin. But then by an act not of their own doing, they are plucked out of that field, redeemed from that cruel master of sin by dying, and then are placed in an adjacent field, the field of Christ, and given new life. Their master is no longer sin, but Christ. They're now free from the obligation to obey sin. They are not in his field, and he is not their master. They are free to joyfully obey their new master, Christ. But as the sheep graze in the field, some days they tend to wander closer to the fence that separates their old field from their new field, their old master from their new master. And when they draw close, they often hear their old master cry out with his demands for obedience to his ways. They're no longer his sheep. They no longer graze in his pasture. They are not under his authority. They do not have to obey his commands. They can resist and obey their new master, Christ. Yet, they hear sin's commands, and at times they choose to obey, though they don't have to. But when they do, their new master, Christ, does not pluck them out of his field and toss them back into the field of sin done with them. He doesn't tie them to a pole and beat them. He gently uses his staff and he guides them back from the fence. He opens his arms wide and he receives them in for affection and acceptance, reminding them that he is a good shepherd and it is his kindness that leads them to repentance, reminding them to listen to his voice. Christian, we are like the sheep, are we not? Born into this pasture of sin, born under Adam. From one man, sin entered the world. But then God gifted us with faith to believe in his son, plucked us out of this field of sin, redeemed us from it by dying and, and, and us dying in him. He took us from the demands of this field of sin and its master. He placed us into the field of grace. You are a sheep of grace. Now, it's not impossible for you to sin. We are very capable of sinning still but it's not necessary. It is not necessary. 
why would you want to go back? Why would you want to go back? Like the Israelites when they left Egypt. Do you remember the story in Exodus? They leave Egypt. They've been slaves for 450 years, crying out for freedom from this cruel master of slavery, the Egyptians. And they're freed by God's miraculous act of grace in their lives, wandering through the desert. And as they're in the desert, what they keep crying out for is Egypt. I want to go back. I I remember the food. I remember the grapes. I remember the, the, the house that we had. Now I'm in a tent. I want to go back. Moses leading them was constantly brought to this challenge of reminding them that what was actually in Egypt wasn't freedom, but was slavery. And Paul's going to do the same thing next week as we continue chapter six. Slavery is going to be the illustration that he uses. This week, death. Next week, slavery. He's going to go remember the slave that you were to sin. Don't go back to that. You will have days, Christian, and hours and weeks where the enticement of your old master, the demands of sin, the rewards of unrighteousness call to you. They swoon you and they, des- and they deceive you. But you do not have to follow them. You have a new master. You are free. You have died to your sin. When porn calls your name today, you already died to it. You already died to it. It is not your master. When lust calls your name, you have already died to it. It is not your master. When pride calls your name, you have already died to it. It is not your master. When hatred calls your name, you have already died to it. It is not your master. When bitterness calls your name, you have already died to it. It is not your master. When the oppression of others calls your name, you have already died to it. It is not your master. You do not have to listen, for you have died with Christ and you have risen with Christ. Sin does not have the stranglehold on you that it once did. Next week, Paul says, for when the slave dies, he is no longer a slave. He has been set free from that slavery. This is the reality of our life. If you have faith in Christ. To this point, Paul has been addressing in verses 1 through 10, he has been addressing what we call indicatives, truth statements. Truth statements. This is the reality. This is the way that it is. And now, in verse 11, he changes and turns his attention to an imperative, a gospel imperative, an exhortation, a command, an urge of action. Because the reality is that you have died with Christ. You are dead to your sin, and you are now a new person, risen with Christ. Because of that reality, here's his command to us. Here's his imperative. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the truth. So you must You must consider this the truth. It already is. You can't do anything about it. This is the truth. Would you wake up and realize it? Remember who you are. You are the Son of God who has died with Christ and has been risen with Christ. You are free from your sin, so act like it. 
This is his plea with us. His plea is following five chapters of us being saved by grace to which he doesn't now go, now overcome your sin so that you can earn this grace. He goes, it's been given to you and this is reality. You're free from sin. Now live like it. This is who you really are. Stop being who you're not. Why would you go back to sin? When you let sin reign in your body, when you give up your hands and your feet and your minds and your hearts and your mouths, when you give up your members to the reign of sin, you are forgetting who you are. He says in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You've been freed from your sins, so start acting like it. Stop going back to sin. Stop giving yourself, your body, your members, your hands and your heart and your mind and your feet and your, your body. Stop giving it to the unrighteousness of sin. It doesn't belong to that master anymore. It belongs to Christ, so use it for his righteousness. Remember who you are. The next time sin comes and cries out to you and entices you to come and follow its lead, may these words echo in your mind and your heart. Remember who you are, and may you remember this passage. You are united to Christ through faith. You're dead to your sin and alive to Christ. Don't give in. Paul says, sin, may it never be. Instead, he says, use your body for righteousness. Or use your hands to serve and your feet to go. Your minds to think and reason, your hearts to love, and your mouths to tell for the sake of the gospel. Give of yourself to righteousness. Church, I believe strongly the reason that many of us go days and weeks and months without actually doing anything um, assertive or anything proactive or any action towards the spread of the gospel is because we have so given our members over to sin, we don't know how to give them over to that works of righteousness. We're letting sin continue to master our bodies and our actions, and our thoughts, and our desires. And Paul goes, you're free of that. Stop doing that. Instead, use what the Lord has given you, your mind, and your emotions, and your heart, and your hands, and your feet, and all that he's given you, and use your members for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of the gospel. Remember the context he's writing in here. To a church that has grown divided over racial issues, and he's writing to them to unite them under the gospel so that they might send him on to Spain with the gospel. This is a book with the end goal being mission. And so as he writes this and he calls them forth to remember who they are, that they are dead to their sin and they're alive to righteousness, to use their members for righteousness, he's calling them to use their body for the sake of the mission of the gospel going forth 
which won't happen if their members are given to sin. And then in verse 14, he brings us back to an indicative, to a truth statement again. He sandwiches in his commands. You are free from sin because you have died with Christ and risen with Christ. So act like you're free from sin. And then he goes back and he says, for sin, verse 14, will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin will have no memory over you. All right, we'll have no victory over, no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The truth statement, you do not have to sin today. It is not your master. But Christian, you may sin today. You may. And when you do, I plead with you to remember verse 14. Read verse 14. Cling to verse 14. Memorize verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Because of God's grace poured out on those who have faith in Jesus, there is coming a day when we will have, when sin will have no voice to entice you with. Right? It's not even just that there's coming a day where you won't give in to sin. There's coming a day it won't entice you to give in to it. There is coming a day when sin's last grip on you will loosen. There's coming a day when sin will once and for all be stripped of all power and presence. Sin will not have the last word in your life, Christian. Sin will not win in your life. You're not under the law, but under this grace. So, Christian, if you are dead to sin and alive in Christ through faith, you have been listening, and you, but you have still been listening to the voice of the old master and heeding his calls to sin. My pleading with you today is to stop. Stop giving in to your sin. It is not your master. Say no. Remember who you are. And Christian, today, if you found yourself choosing to listen to your old master and believing his lie that your new master, Jesus, is disappointed in you, and angry with you, wanting to beat you if you return, eager to punish you, running out of grace for you. Remember, you're not under law, but grace. Jesus paid your debt. Jesus broke sin's chains. You died with him and now you live with him. His arms are open wide. His acceptance has already been applied. In his love and protection, you can come and hide. He's kind to you. Come back. Come back to him today. To the unbeliever, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, your master is cruel. You serve the master of sin, you serve a cruel master. He has no love or affection for you. Your master uses you and he devours you. Sin might be fun for a season, but as we'll see next week, it only leads to death, not to life. Your future is no future but shame and turmoil and loss and grief. But if you come to Jesus in faith today, if you would look to Jesus, to his perfect life, his substitutionary death on the cross in your place, his burial and his resurrection, then today can be your funeral. Look to Jesus and today celebrate your death 
and celebrate your new birth, both your day of death and your day of life. Through Christ, come to a new master who is gracious and good and kind and loving. Church, I pray that your hearts will be stirred today to obedience because of who you've already been made. Remember who you are. Dead to sin, alive in Christ. Therefore, use your members for righteousness, not for sin. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the conviction of it and for the hopefulness of it. And I pray that you would free your people today. We love you. We thank you for your grace. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.